Well, good morning. Good to see you. And those first two songs that we just sang are, they're kind of representative of the Psalms. There's a songbook, an ancient songbook, right in the middle of our Bibles called the Psalms. And they cover the breadth of life. The first song we sang was this real quiet offering of, man, this is just all, all I have to bring is this right now. And if you listen to the verses of those songs, it's for people who come into our midst every Sunday who are just scraggling in. They're, they're, they're barely getting here, uh, and yet they're here. They want to come and they want to be with the people of God. They want to lift their attention to God. Um, and then Joe Chow on the bass kicking in with, with a song. <laughs> With a song that just, that, that, you know, if that's not where you are, you're like, man, why, why are we starting with this sort of downer song? Like, I, I'm ready to praise God and I want to jump up and I want to clap and I want to, um, and so, and so on any given moment, like as a, as a church family, that's, that's who's amongst us, right? And everything in between. Um, those, those who've received really, really devastating news, those who are beset with struggles that, that they just feel defeated and yet they're here. You're here. And those who are, who are just on cloud nine. It doesn't mean their circumstances are amazing. It just means that joy has cut through that. It means peace has cut through that. It means victory is being sustained in the power of the Spirit. And you're like, I can't, the, I can't wait to get to church and just praise with the people of God and be here. Um, so let's just be my... All right. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but only a fringe few of you love alarm clocks. And, uh, and as you read the scriptures, here's what you realize, that prophets of God were about as popular as alarm clocks. Uh, it's interesting, when, um, when ideas come to my mind, you begin thinking about those things. I actually sort of tracked some alarm clock things. I wasn't thinking about alarm clocks at all Monday morning. But Monday morning, I did something I can't ever remember doing. Uh, we used to physically assault our alarm clocks before they were really expensive computers. Remember that? Um, so now I literally just tell Siri to set my alarm whenever it does. She confirms in a British accent, because I think Siri with a British accent is funny, and it's done. And uh, in the old days, I used to, any of you smack that alarm clock, throw it, stomp on it? I mean, you just, you, yeah, it was a bad scene. Um, Monday morning, I, I did something I don't think I've ever done before, and uh, and that is I booed my alarm clock. So my alarm was going off, and... <laughs> And I booed it. I, I, woke, I sort of woke up to myself booing it. I thought, wow, maybe that's me verbally assaulting because I know that it's really not wise to physically assault alarm clocks anymore. Then on Thursday, uh, I wish I was making this up, but, I, but I'm not. We have a rule in our house that we don't do electronics uh, in the room. So our kids got a smartwatch that 10 years ago would have been thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Now we have two eight-year-olds with smartwatches. Um, and so we remove those from the room. And, um, and our kids want their alarm, their, their, their watches for their alarm. They think it's really fun to wake up to an alarm. That feels like a big grown-up thing to do. We said no. At 6 a.m. on Thursday, I didn't need to be up at 6 a.m. on Thursday, mind you. I heard the craziest clown sounds going off with, with honking noise, noses sounds. Just the weirdest, craziest things. I'm a really slow waker-upper. My mom's in the room. She can attest to this. Uh, I'm a really slow waker-upper. So, I'm just laughing. Like, I woke up laughing because it's, it's absurd that I'm hearing, like, you're pulled out of sleep mode and you're hearing these crazy clown funhouse sounds. And my wife is, like, elbowing me, go turn it off. It's on my dresser across the room. Like, my brain didn't engage that I could stop this noise. I just found it absurdly funny that I was waking up to these crazy sounds. All that to say this. 
Sometimes the most important voice in your life is the most unpopular. Sometimes the most important voice in our community's life is the most unpopular. Prophets are a little bit like fire alarms. They're an absolute nuisance unless there's a fire. If there's a fire, they're a great thing. Otherwise, it's just kind of annoying. We're going to look at John today. He's the prophet who was the forerunner to Jesus. He introduced Jesus, and he's his cousin. Last week, we looked at this idea of transformation. In fact, Jesus really modeled transformation in a very sort of implicit way, and that is this. He didn't stay a junior higher. He grew. He increased. He didn't stay in that phase. He grew out of that phase. And simply by modeling, coming as a baby and growing into adulthood, if we look at the life of Jesus, we realize, wow, we've been called in that same way. Not to just grow in stature physically, not to just grow in wisdom intellectually, but to grow up spiritually and not remain in junior high. We have a saying around here that we're quite fond of that captures this. It's this, come as you are, what's the rest of it? But don't stay that way. That second part, but don't stay that way, is this, this God value of transformation. God called us to transform. God called us to change. If you are the exact same today, spiritually, as you were last year at this time, question that. Isn't it standard reason that if you're keeping in step with the Spirit, that if you're following Jesus, that the scenery is going to change a little bit? That it's not going to feel same old, same old, comfortable? So come as you are, but don't stay that way. It's easy to sort of chuck rocks at things, um, but because we're one of them, I'll chuck it. I think American churches, I think there's other countries that are guilty of this as well, but I think American churches are filled with junior hires, spiritually. They're ever in the classroom, and they're ever in the safety of the crowd, never wanting to veer out and sort of get too far away from what is peer acceptable. There's something really powerful when someone like Juliana goes and travels to a different part of the country or part of the world. That is, she goes and she experiences the Spirit of God at work in a different context. And sometimes when you come back from a trip like that, you have fresh eyes to see with your own culture what is stale and stagnant and what ought not be. As we read the scriptures, you just go, gosh, that's, that doesn't line up with, with how we see it, 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 it should be. I want you to turn your Bible to Luke 3, and um, we're going to read a pretty decent chunk of Scripture today and look at it. If I say the words turn or burn, some of you have an immediate thought about that. We live in such a secular society, I think some people think that's barbecue advice, right? Right? Um, that you better turn it, right, or else it's going to burn. Um, for those of you in the know, this is sort of Christian speak for uh, hellfire and brimstone type preachers. Many people have a negative reaction to this. It might come off as something like this. Hey, come to our church. Don't worry, we don't have those preachers that are like turn and burn type preachers. I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing. 
I don't know that it's good that we all, many of us, have a, a negative gut reaction to that and that we want to explain away this type of thing. At the beginning of this series, I promised that whoever would be up here would do their best. They would make the vow to give you all of the Gospel of Luke. Now, that doesn't mean that as we preach through it, we're going to get to every nugget of it. But what we mean is this. We're not going to hold back or skip parts that are uncomfortable, that are difficult to understand, that are downright abrasive to us to hear. And because of that, you are going to get some turn or burn preaching this morning. No shouts of amen, no waving of the hands, no saying, yeah, we can't wait. But it's right here in the scripture. We hear sort of a turn and burn preacher, one of the originals, at least of the New Testament. I want to give you sort of your, your outline uh, this morning has sort of a little bone structure to, to how we're going to look at things. And so it all centers around, around the, the message that, that is being given. And what we have here um, is, you know, there's, there's this miracle baby that we read about the start of Luke we have heard of him, it's Jesus and Christmas time and all that. Here's the other miracle baby, John, right? Born supernaturally to Zechariah and his wife. And here he is now all grown up on the scene in his public ministry, and we read about him. So the setting of the message this morning um, is given in verse 1, and Luke kind of does this classic you know, thing of putting the, the timing and, and who's in charge? So it kind of pinpoints. As you read verses 1 and 2, if you know the story, um, even if you just grew up hearing the Christmas story, you hear some of the characters emerge of who was ruling at the time. Here's what I want to point out about the setting. That when he mentions those who are in power, Caesars, and then governors, and then tetrarchs, what he's doing, by the way, he gives sort of the political power structure, and then he also gives the religious power brokers, right, who, who, who were high priests in that season. So these are the power brokers of the empire. In that day and age, these were the on-air talking heads. These are the ones setting policy and laws. These are the ones forming opinions. These are the ones that in our day and age you can make direct parallels are having the voice and having the impact of things. And here's what I want you to catch. The word of God did not come to them. The word of God did not come to the predominant voice that was in culture at the time. The word, of the, the word of God came to someone else. So verse 2, it says this, that, that, that the word of God came to John in the wilderness. Why John? Well, from our Christmas message, you could say this, that John's eyes were on the empire, the unseen empire, the eternal empire. And that God's word came to John, not to those who were on this world's empire. Luke sort of hearkens to uh, the, the language that he would have been very familiar with that introduced a prophet. The word of God came to. If you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos, if you read the first few verses of those, of those prophetic books, they all have the same ring to it. Luke is making a really clear connection to his readers, that says, this is a prophetic word. God is speaking again. The alarm clock's going off. Listen up. 
Remember, he's been silent now for some 400 years, and now it's John the Baptist, and he's, he's speaking. I love that it says that the Word of God came to John in the wilderness. The Word of God came in the wild. Some parallels to Jesus here, right? You might say that, that the Word arrived in the sticks, right? Bethlehem, just sort of out there, away from the power structure, away from a place where you would expect sort of to, to gather a following. I think about John, who, like Jesus, was a junior hire right around the same time. John and Jesus, cousins, junior hires. Aren't you glad John grew up? John grew up because what we see here is he's out in the wild. He's off doing something that isn't conventional. What he's doing is he's keeping in step with the Spirit. And what we realize is when you keep in step with the Spirit, sometimes the Spirit leads you out into the wild. Leads you out into the wilderness. Leads you out into places that look like you're a wild-eyed fanatic. I love that John didn't remain spiritually a junior higher, just going along with the crowd. So verses 1 and 2 sort of set the timing and the location of the message. How about the messenger? We see John as this radical. We attach this name, John the Baptist, to him. But I want to challenge that because I think the scriptures challenge that. Verse 2 just says, John the son of Zechariah. So it's crystal clear this is the same John at the beginning of Luke who was born miraculously. This title of Baptist is so tied to his name, but the title of our message this morning is John the Christian. And I did that because um, while, we, while we attach Baptist for a very clear reason, so we're clarifying between, is this John the Gospel writer? sometimes called John the Evangelist, or is this John the Baptist? No, this is John the Baptist. Okay, we, we got which person we're talking about in Scripture. But lest we think that his sole thing was to baptize people, what I really see is rather than just thinking about a radical, unique, one-off person, I actually think John's life should be normative for Christians. He just does a lot of normative Christian stuff. What does the idea of a Christian mean? It means a little Christ. Remember, John is the one who, when his disciples came and said, hey, there's someone else over here preaching and whatnot. What is, what is his response? His response is this. He must increase, meaning Jesus. I must decrease. I'm the little Christ. People are drawn and coming out to me, and we're going to see that they're kind of wondering, is this the Christ? And he says, no, I must decrease. He must increase. So if there's anyone who's a prototype of what a Christian is, it's John the Baptist or John the Christian. Here's what I want to do. I want to read the passage out loud. I want you to follow along. And what I want you to do is I want you to have an eye to this passage with this question in mind. What are the things that John is doing and experiencing that as I take in sort of the whole counsel of God... And I know from personal experience is normative for all Christians. That John is simply being a Christian. Now again, it's in his context, so there are some variances. But I want to look for similarities. What are things that just, this is just normal Christian behavior and, and living. Clear? And we're going to have like actual feedback for this. So you're going to use this information in a second. So pay attention. John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Actually, let's, let's skip the, the setting and say this. Um, 
The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Verse 14, soldiers who asked him, also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and the shaft will be burned with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the other evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So now, real question. What is seen here that is simply being a Christian? What are some normative things that John is doing or experiencing that's normal to the Christian life according to the Scriptures? And we're going to have grace with each other. Feel free to just have this conversation and fire off things, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Who's got something? He fulfilled the Great Commission, which is what? Right, and, and that was for, that's for all disciples. Yeah, that's Jesus' closing words before he leaves. Absolutely. What else? Knowledge of the Scriptures. Knowledge of the Scriptures, yeah. In fact, John actually reports that he quoted these words. He said these very words. I am the voice of one calling in the world. He didn't just receive that reputation. He was saying, like, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah. What else? Yeah, yeah, he preaches a strong message of, of action, right? And we see that modeled by Jesus, taught by Jesus, reinforced 
by the, by, by the letters written to the churches that this isn't going on. It's being reproved if it's not happening. What else? Absolutely, yeah. That, 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 the, that the kingdom of God living goes with you wherever you go. And we're going to get to this, but don't you love how specific he, he, he gets to each group? What else? Live righteously. Live righteously. Holiness matters. Absolutely. Anything else come to mind? How about what John experienced? What are some of the things that happened to John as a direct result of him just having the word of God and proclaiming it? Persecution. What do we know? He didn't just lock him up. What happened to John? He lost his head. He gave his very life for it. What else? Persecution's one side of it. What else happened to John? What, 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 what's that? He was making disciples. Absolutely. That's right. Sometimes the crowds and the disciples, instead of beheading you, what do they do? They elevate you. Right? Maybe he's the Christ. You don't think that's tempting that all these people are coming out and he's making a splash? He held to why he was there. He was there to honor God. He wasn't there to please men. What else? Anything else come to mind? Say that again. Did you say yearning? Right. Yeah. Proclaiming kind of what was what was to come. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Okay. So <clears throat> let me say it this way that if you think of the fruit of the spirit and, and you look at different ways people are gifted, and you look at the call of people in, in Scripture, what you realize is this. Um, take, the, take the Great Commission, for instance. We are all called to evangelize. Some are supernaturally gifted and called by God to evangelize people. So even though the call is for everyone to do it, some people, I have friends, they sneeze, and instead of someone saying, God bless you, they say, how can I receive Jesus Christ? And I'm like, how did that just happen? Like, whoever they share Jesus with, it just seems that that person is ripe and ready, and it's not in their delivery. There is something supernatural going on that just says, wow, you know, brother, sister, I mean, you need to keep doing this. So we're all called to evangelize. Some are supernaturally gifted to do that. We are all called to preach, to herald forth the good news. A part of that is warning. Do you notice sort of his, his preaching style, right, is huge warning about those, sort of the, the terrifying wrath of God that is imminent. And so, turn. Turn. Save yourself. Receive. Believe. Do you know how dangerous it would be to invite John the Baptist to a, to a church gathering? I mean, his message is heavy on wrath and warning of God. Turn or burn people. Now, is love and grace there? I think it's there. I think what we see when he says, with many other exhortations, he preached the good news. But we can't really value the good news if we're not clearly aware. Hey, the axe is at the tree right now. 
Think of the devastation that an axe does to a tree. There's warning and, 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 and wrath in John's message. While uniquely used and called, John is a model. I hate to use sometimes the word disciple of Jesus because I think our minds just can get too familiar with that. Even follower of Jesus. How about practitioners of Jesus? How about apprentices of Jesus? That implies like there is this close master-servant relationship. I have an eye toward this. I'm a practitioner. I'm an apprentice. I am going to grow up and do everything that, that the master does. Not just sit in a classroom. Not just go with the crowd. So John is doing some things that are, that are really normative for Christians. His preaching by life and words motivated action. What should we do with this? When someone asked what we should do, he didn't soften it. Well, nothing. Just repent and believe and fill out a card and you're good. He didn't say that. It's telling that he didn't say, go get into some classes. What did he say? He went right to lifestyle. He went right to their job. He went right to their temptations and told them to change. So if John was a forerunner and made preparations for Jesus to arrive, when you think about all the different fields of expertise that are represented right now in this room, how important are preparations in some different fields? Let me just fire off a couple to kind of get your brain going. Um, my father-in-law is a pilot for United. How about pre-flight check for a, a pilot? And you want that preparation going well. I love that he's a detailed guy. If you ask my father-in-law a question, he's going to go systematically through the thing. You're like, oh man, I should have asked that question. I don't have time for the answer. But then I'm like, I'm so glad he's a pilot. I'm glad pilots are like that. Because I want pre-flight preparation to go really, really well. When you think about preparations in cooking, in construction, in farming. Evidently, I, my team's out, but there's a couple of football games today. How about in sports, right? I mean, the, the watching of the tape, the game plan, the preparing of people. How important is preparation in surgery? So preparation is this massively important thing, and that's, that's John's call, is to, is to prepare the way for Jesus to come. When you look specifically, so that's sort of the setting of the message. That's the messenger. We're looking now at sort of the, the message itself. And it's very hard is this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What does repent mean? It means to change your mind. Right? And by changing your mind, it's not just thought. It's, it's your life. Change direction. Turn. That's where turn or burn comes, by the way. A good replacement of repent is turn. Change your mind about how things are going right now. So change your mind, your heart, direction, and live righteously in accordance with that turning, with that repentance, with that changing of the mind. Not just quoting Isaiah, John is mimicking the message of Isaiah. I want to direct your minds for a second. You can jot these passages down and look at them later, or you can turn there. But Isaiah 29, 13. The same spirit that was speaking through the prophet Isaiah is now speaking through the prophet John, the Christian. And here's what he says in Isaiah 13. Isaiah says this, The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is made up only of rules taught by men. 
Again, God cares, not that we just come and offer lip service, not just that we come and offer our physical bodies, not just that we come and bring our prescribed offerings to Him. He wants it all. And He cares about what happens when you leave this building in a few minutes. We don't shut off the, you know, taxi, on-duty, off-duty sign. On duty while I'm, at, while I'm you know, here at church. On duty when I'm serving in this specific capacity. On duty, ooh, there's a non-Christian. I better click on the on duty sign and really get my, you know, be a good witness. Friends, we are a witness. Our life, and, our life and words preach a message 24 hours a day at all times. So God cares how we live outside this worship space. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 12 and following Listen to the dramatic language God uses for this. He says, stop coming to worship. No more sacrifices. I can't stand your gatherings. My soul hates your appointed celebrations. I will hide my face from and not listen to your hands raised in prayer. And it culminates in verse 16 with this. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. So that was Isaiah, led by the Spirit of God. Now listen to John. You brood of vipers. These are people coming out to his ministry. He's out preaching at Yosemite. It takes a while to get out there. People show up. They get out of their cars. They're coming to hear the itinerant preacher, and he calls them brood of vipers. If you don't know, it may be lost in translation to you, but that's a bad thing. Terrible way to just sort of win friends and influence people and gather a crowd. You brood of vipers. Stop hoarding, ignoring, stealing, extorting, bullying. Start sharing. Start looking out for those who are most vulnerable with you. Take inventory of what you have and say, why would God have me steward two of these if there's someone near me that has none of these? Do you see it? He doesn't just quote Isaiah. He, he's living like Isaiah. It's the same heart of God. It's actually some of the same problems re, regurgitated. Let me just say, one of my favorite things is to use examples from our church, good, bad, and ugly, to illustrate the scriptures. And I'll say this, in our Bay Area, God is on the move in some really, really powerful ways. Let me share with you one. Yesterday morning, um, I was speaking for Foster the Bay at a church in Alameda County. We're just now beginning to operate in Alameda County for Foster the Bay. And we're praising God because before we even publicly, officially launched in Alameda County, it's like we couldn't hold back the tide. We already have something like five partner churches, the county on board, and all key ministry roles filled in a county before we even publicly, officially rolled out in the county. Because God's on the move. Forty-some people came to this meeting yesterday morning at 9 o'clock on a Saturday the meeting officially ended at 10.30. I don't think anyone left before 11. There's something that happens when people don't just scooch after a meeting. They're just lingering. And why were they lingering? Because of this. We got our commitment cards at the end. And 15 people that morning stepped up to be foster families, 
or support friends for those foster families. Significant commitment. Several others said, I want to take this to my church. I want to be an advocate at my church. I want to give financially because of what God's doing here. I think we had something like 10 churches represented at that meeting. Here's something even more powerful and bringing it closer to home. Wednesday at 4.30, I wrote it down because I, I just, it's just like, thank you, God, for this. I am looking at my notes for this coming Saturday's meeting, meaning yesterday, and while reviewing those notes and making a few tweaks and praying God's heart for the orphan to be, to be galvanized by the churches, by just Christians acting like Christians in Alameda County, I get a text from this guy named James Humphrey from our church. And it just said, just got a placement, two-year-old girl, praise God. So friends, the Humphreys, who began this process in fall of 2015, have just culminated that process Wednesday and they now, I asked him this morning, James, how's it going? <laughs> how, how, how is it, you know, with, with a two-year-old now in your midst? How's Olivia, your biological daughter, doing? How's your wife who's pregnant doing? I, and you don't think that there's now need for the church to, to gather around and share with the Humphreys in some very tangible, specific ways? I'll tell you one of those is this. James comes early. He's not here. He'll be, in, he'll be here next hour with his family. But he comes before all of you to make coffee for all of you. And so I initially said, hey, James, I told both you and Allie, no more singing in the band, no more making coffee. As soon as that kid comes, like, we get it. God, we will joyfully go without your contribution here because of the deep contribution that needs to happen and focus now at home. And James said something really interesting to me. I jumped to a conclusion that was wrong. He said, Dave, I'm up early anyways. I love coming here to make coffee. He didn't want me to take that away from him. So I just said to him this morning, I said, great. There's coming a day when you will, like I may pastorally say, you're not making coffee, stay at home and help your wife. Amen? Amen. But I said, I get it. For right now, totally. Man, you keep coming coffee. But in this season, before your wife gives birth, in a handful of months, find other people to raise up with you so they can joyfully come. And while they're making coffee, they're praying for the beautiful picture of someone caring and stepping in and giving their family to a foster child who's in need right now of a loving and stable home. So, so church, this is happening. Here's what I had a profound sense yesterday morning. I'm driving out to Fremont and I'm driving and I thought to myself this. I thought, God, I'm going to a worship lead. I, I'm, I'm basically going to a worship leading gig this morning. There wasn't any music. I wasn't leading in choruses. But I was a worship leader yesterday morning as much as Ben or Travis or, or Joe were this morning leading us in music. Why? Because God cares about what we do here on Sunday mornings. He cares about what we sing. He cares about those who preach and lead ritual-type things in a church setting. And he cares about the fatherless. He cares about us having an eye toward injustice. He cares about us stepping up and just sharing. Let me turn our attention in the few moments I have left to sort of the outcome of the message. What are the results when the word of God comes to a faithful servant and he or she just proclaims them by life and message? What are the results of the word of God? What's the outcome? 
Let me jot down a couple of things. And while I do this, I want you to test your own life and message. I want you to see if this is present or absent in your life. Remember, John was used in some incredibly large ways. We're, we're, we're studying him and talking about him. Jesus called him the greatest who ever lived. But John's a normal Christian. Catch this. Filled with the same spirit we possess, Christians. So, here's one thing. We already talked about this, but his message stirred action and obedience. Verse 7, the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Verse 10, what should we do? John's message and the way of he delivered it and the spirit with which he gave it prompted obedience. It prompted response. It prompted, we should probably do something about this. In verse 8, he says, bear fruit. And he says this, very next line, don't say to yourselves. Now, let's pause for a second on what, what, those, what those details are. But there's a general principle here I had never seen before. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance locked into my brain years and years and years and years ago for my own soul and for the souls of others. We're not interested in just making a bunch of decisions and tracking that. We want to preach Jesus. We want to see them baptized. And we want to teach them all that he commanded. And what he commanded was not just to memorize principles, but to live them out. So bear fruit in keeping with the premise. I got that. Look at these next few words, though. Don't say to yourselves. I thought about that. And I thought, man, here's one of the challenges that I have as a preacher preaching in a church. Is that it's quite possible to be in the midst of people who find themselves comfortably already saved, even if they're not. So here's the heart of men and women. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance speaks to the fact that we like comfort, we like to stay where we are. Gosh, that sure doesn't line up with my life, but I don't know if I really want to change that much. We sing some really powerful lyrics here. I surrender all and take my life. It's all yours, my voice, my wallet, my talents, my energy. But here's the second thing this passage speaks to. Don't say to yourselves. Basically, he's saying, stop your mouth for a second. What's he getting at? He's getting at this, self-justification. Where, where were their brains going? Hey, we're fathers of Abraham. They were going to lineage. They were going to tradition. They were going to all these other places. But the heart of it is, we don't, don't, don't tell us what to do. Do you know who you're speaking to here? Who are you to say this? And you know what? That's a real common thing in the heart of fallen human beings. Just to self-justify. That's why James says, meekly receive the word implanted in you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So a part of receiving a message and being able to even hear it and obey is to stop the mouth. Romans says that the law of God does that. It shuts every mouth from defending itself. Like if you really want to just start walking through the Ten Commandments, and if you're so prideful and religious that you can't get the heart of it, that you read Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments, which is the Sermon on the Mount, pretty quickly your mouth becomes silent in justifying yourself. Why? Because the perfect law of God exposes the wickedness of all of us. So bear fruit and don't say to yourselves, 
And then the second part of it is to share. Whoever has two, give to one who has zero. Pretty simple math. So he didn't leave the sin and the instruction in the general, but he went down to specifics. This was already mentioned, but look at verse 12. He's saying, kill the sin of not collecting more than you should, tax collector. That sin needs to be put to death, and here's the specific action point to that. Verse 14, kill sin by not using your power to serve yourself, soldier. So he starts getting into some very specific ways of being obedient. Jesus isn't interested in a message only of talk. Whoever claims to him, whoever claims to believe in him must walk as Jesus did. All right, here's the second thing that we see from from John's message. Here's the second result you could say is confusion. There's excitement that surrounds it, but there's also confusion. Verse 15 says, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Here's what should be normative for you, Christian. As you open your mouth and try to explain why you live the way that you do, or you get into a spiritual discussion, you begin to describe things, there should regularly be confusion. You know why? You are proclaiming something that is revealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And dead people who are not spiritually alive to that, it sounds like utter foolishness and nonsense. Don't try to be confusing. It just will be confusing. Try to be as clear and simple and as winsome and as humble as you can, but recognize that will regularly cause some confusion. I thought about this as a person called to teach and preach. If I always have nothing but praise and nothing but positive and nothing but, yeah, we, we, you know, we just love to hear you talk all the time, something's wrong. I don't need to try to be offensive. I just need to preach God's word to the people. I will be offensive. I hope you are annoyed at me sometimes. I hope you want to smack me like an alarm clock sometimes. Because you know what that means? It means I'm fulfilling what I've committed to you. I'm giving you the whole Luke. (laughs) Nothing but the Luke. I'm giving it all to you. You know what? I get mad at myself sometimes. I write it out. I'm like, I don't want to say that. I don't even like that. I go back, I'm like, that's what I need to say. That's what's true. So it is with you. I hope there is some tension sometimes in the people that you're sharing with. Secondly, though, is this. John's really quick to clear up the confusion as best as he can. People put the spotlight on him. He says, let me put the spotlight on one who's coming, who's mightier than I am. People try to elevate him. He just stepped off the pedestal is what we can see. Furthermore, when people said, what should we do? He didn't say, well, just do whatever comes naturally. No. He gave them specific instruction and led them in that. Verse 18, it says, he, with many exhortations, he preached the good news. So was there hellfire and brimstone? Absolutely. Was there exhortation and encouragement and the good news? Absolutely. If all you are is an obnoxious jerk that just constantly gives out the warning of God, repent of that. It's the kindness of God that woos people and wins people to the faith. John was kind to the end with Herod and still was misunderstood. Finally, that leads us to verse 20, to to persecution. That Herod, amidst all his other sins, added this to it. He locked up John the Christian. 
let me just draw this out. I think John could have immediately bettered his circumstances and eased his pain with one simple thing. He takes the message of the word of God that he had received in the wild and he alters it. He softens it. He changes it. Hey, you know those things I said about you being in violation of God's holy picture of marriage? You know what? Times are changing. We're a little bit more understanding of the word marriage now. This is a different culture. I actually went back to the original language. I was wrong on that. I think John probably could have saved his head. Hear this principle. John was simply acting like a Christian, which is a little Christ, by loving people to their own blind confusion and their own hatred and their own confusion, and it ultimately led to his own death. And he loved him well to the end. Do you see that he's putting Herod's future eternal soul ahead of his own comfort? We say that we want to soften and kind of have a a better message, a more winsome message for their sake. It's a lie. It's for our sake. We don't like the discomfort of, of confronting people with their sin. We're too worried about their feelings today and not worried enough about their feelings on judgment day. There's coming a day, friends, that all of us should be horrifically terrified of. And it's written right here into our passage today that says if you are outside the covering of Jesus' blood, it is a terrifying, horrible day that is coming, and it's imminent. We're so concerned with people's feelings today, we don't think of their future eternal security. And so John loved Herod well to the end, even at the cost of his life. Man, if that isn't a convicting picture to you and I, I don't know what is. We are tempted in very similar ways to lay down experiencing rejection for the sake of other people. I want to sort of shift our hearts here. You can lay your pens down for a second. And I want to take time this morning as we gather around the Lord's table and I want to use some moments of reflection. Alex, if you could just bring the house lights down, actually, that would be good. I'm hoping that right where you're sitting could be a little, little personal sanctuary between you and the Lord. Today I'm calling you by the Spirit of Jesus and the example of John to repent of your sins. The good doctor, this idea that we're kind of gathering around Luke and seeing Jesus as the good doctor, he doesn't just administer medicine or prescribe medicine, he is the medicine. He gives his life and says to us, partake. And what we're about to do with communion dramatizes something very, very powerful. That as we eat the bread and drink the cup, that we are intertwined with the comfort he brings and intertwined with the suffering that he experienced. There's an inseparable nature to what happens in that moment of trust in the blood of Jesus Christ that we become a part of his family through faith. I want to invite you this morning not just to repent of your sins general, but to repent of your greed, 
to repent of your discontentment, to repent of your uncontrolled anger, your raging lust, your apathy toward the suffering of other people, your wicked tongue that gossips and tears down or remains silent in the face of being a witness for Jesus, to repent of your worldly ambition, your quest for, for vain glory, And lest you think you check all of those off, here's what I would say. Follow the Spirit's lead into your specific area of sin. The truth is that your personality, your life experiences, your station in life, your very vocation trend towards certain very specific sins. What are they? What is the trap that you're most prone to fall into? This morning's an opportunity, friends, to have hands open and say, God, I don't want that. I know you've rescued me and I'm eternally secure. But I want to be rescued today afresh. I don't want to go back Monday morning to an office climate that I participate in that is unhealthy and ungodly. I don't want to participate as I walk out of this room and run to other things that I'm finding hope in, pleasure in, security in, identity in, that lead to my certain death. Would you rescue me? Would you grow me up from junior high, increase my spiritual growth? When you see John's exploding words of those who were coming to be baptized, it's centered around this. They were coming to do a religious activity and making a mockery of it because their heart wasn't in line. Don't make the same mistake today. Come on up, Ben. As you examine, let me just read 1 Corinthians 11, which talks about both communion and examining ourselves. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Listen, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Here's the action item. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats, the, who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We're going to be led in just some music. The music's going to play just as a kind of giving you space to examine and meet with God alone, even in the midst of all these people. 
The communion elements are going to be passed. I would invite you to take these and hold these. We don't have time to dissect all that's going on in 1 Corinthians passage, but I will say this. If you don't feel ready to take the communion elements, and what I mean by that is this, if you've not repented of your sins, beg God for mercy, received it in the blood of Jesus Christ. By definition, you're, you're not a Christian. And we welcome you and we love you and we couldn't be more thrilled that you're here with us today. I would invite you to repent and fall at the mercy of God and say, I receive your path of salvation, which is to place all my trust in Jesus. You don't need to fill out a card, raise a hand, even walk an aisle. If that's you and you determine that in your heart and you repent, I would invite you to your first communion. I would invite you to partake and do something meaningful with that, where the outside matches the inside. Ray Comfort says this, Those who have seen their worst sin in all its horror can appreciate the cross in all its glory. Take a deep breath in and hold it for a second. As you breathe out, lay down your instinct to justify to minimize, to explain, or to compare in this moment. Psalm 19 says this, How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. That's what we're inviting the Spirit to do. Psalm 139, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the everlasting path.